The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture is Galatians 3, 10 through 14. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thank you, Rachel. My name is Lee Eric Fesco. I am the Director of Discipleship at Christ Presbyterian Church. I I trust everyone had a wonderful Christmas, and uh, you're eagerly anticipating uh, an amazing 2020. Um, It's my honor and privilege to be here with you this morning. It was 42 years ago uh, when my father took my brother and me to a movie in downtown San Francisco, and we stood in a long line to see a movie that everyone was talking about, a movie like any other, no other movie before it. The movie was called Star Wars. I'll never forget that experience. I remember the opening scene, the opening crawl, and the massive spacecraft that seemed to enter into the theater from over our head, it seemed like. And in that moment, I knew this was going to be the greatest thing that I'd ever seen. Just 42 short years later, Earlier this week, in fact, I was able to return the favor to my father along with my kids. We took my dad to see the last installment of the nine-movie saga. It was a great experience, not just because it was a good movie in and of itself, but it conjured up memories of my experience 42 years prior. It was, it was, an, it was, it was emotional at points because I was there with my, my dad and my kids Uh, Who knew that seeing a movie with my dad was the start of something that would conclude 42 years later, and I would get to see that conclusion with my dad and with my kids? What what, uh, I appreciated about the movie was the fact that they had numerous callbacks uh, to the original movie that came out 42 years prior. It carried on the storyline that was established and set into place all those years ago. What was started in a film in 1977 was maintained, honored, and completed in December of 2019. It would have been such a disappointment if they had just discarded the movie's history. And in fact, the writers of the last installment required the viewers, at least, at least to some degree, to understand and be familiar with the movie's history. If you really wanted to experience the benefits of the story, you had to understand the movie's past. We're in a series right now uh, in Galatians, and, and we're into chapter 3. And as Rachel read for us a moment ago, and it's here that Paul is asking us to remember our history, to remember the past, to honor it. He's asking us to go back all the way to essentially the the first installment, all the way back to Abraham in Genesis. Remember what our history tells us. Here's what we've picked up so far in Galatians. This is a letter. It's a letter written by Paul to the church at Galatia, and, and Paul is also indirectly addressing the false teachers that had descended upon the young church. And what these false teachers were telling the church, in short, they were telling them, you know what? Faith in Christ is great. That's great. But if you want to remain acceptable to God, you have to live like a Jew, okay? You have to practice these elements of the law, and then, then you'll be acceptable to God. Well, 
Paul, Paul wasn't having it. He was mad. He was really mad. He was mad about all this. And, and uh, as he put it in chapter 1, you've turned to another gospel. That's another gospel. As if there were another gospel, he says. Because look, this is what we're saying. This is what we Christians believe. And if you don't understand what the gospel is or you've never really been able to articulate it, well, I'm going to spell it out for you today uh, based on what Paul is telling. So just, just, just hang with me for about 25 more minutes and, 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 and let me recap what it is that we, we believe here. This is what we Christians believe. We believe, we believe that because of our sin that we're not right with God. Sin is what separates you and me and everyone else who's ever lived or will live. Sin is what separates us from God. So, so what hope do we have? What we Christians believe is that Jesus, that Jesus makes us right before God. Because of our sin, we're not right before God. Because of Jesus, we can be right with God or justified before God. How does that work? This is what Paul is telling us in this, in this passage today. The righteous shall live by faith, he says. The righteous shall live by faith. So, how are we made right before God? By way of faith. Well, how does that work? What is faith? What, what is Paul telling us that, that uh, Paul is telling us we need to have faith, and if, and if we're going to be made right with God, we need to have faith. So, so what is faith? Earlier this week, my uh, family and I were on our way out the door to run a few errands, and we have two boys, 12 and, and 13 years old, and sometimes it's just a miracle to get them out the door with, with the right clothing. It's cold, and, and it's a miracle that they actually think ahead of time to wear a coat or a sweatshirt. And if they don't, like, don't, don't you need a coat or a sweatshirt or something to keep you warm? Nah, I'm okay. I'm good. They always tell us inevitably. Well, on this particular occasion, as we're headed out, there's a significant chance of rain in the forecast. And one of my boys comes out wearing slides on his feet. You know, the kind. It's just the kind that you, you slide right into the sole and then something over, over the foot. The toes are still exposed, Right? You slide right into them, but most of the foot remains exposed, which is fine for the pool or the beach, right? But a cold day in December, maybe not the best choice. And I know what you're thinking, won't his feet get cold wearing those? Yes, normally they would, but don't worry, he's wearing socks with his slides. And again, normally this is not a hill to die on, okay? I'm not going to die on this hill. But again, there's a significant chance of rain in the forecast, so I asked him, hey, are you sure you want to wear those? It could rain while we're out, and you'll have wet socks. You know the feeling, wet socks, that's awful. And he tells me, oh, it's okay, I have faith. <laughs> oh, okay. So, so knowing that we were going to be talking about this today, I later asked him, when you said it's okay, I have faith, what did you, what did you mean by that? Faith in what? And he said, I have faith in God. He loves me, so I believe he'll hold off the rain so my feet don't get wet. <laughs> I was reluctant to argue with him about it. In fact, I, it didn't end up raining. So. <laughs> but here's the thing. God never made any promises to any of us that he'll keep our feet dry. Okay? That, that's, that's an important distinction when we're considering what faith is. Faith, by definition, is complete trust or confidence in someone or something. In the book of Hebrews, we're told exactly what faith is from the Christian point of view. The writer of Hebrews, chapter 11, verse 1, tells us this. Now, faith is the assurance, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Biblical faith comes with conviction and assurance. Okay? More simply stated, the biblical definition of faith is trusting in something you cannot explicitly prove, but you believe it. 
you trust it because you've somehow, some way, received reassurance that, you'll, that what you're believing is true. Now, as far as my son goes, he never received any reassurance that his feet would remain dry. So we would call that blind faith. That's blind faith. He had no reassurance. But what Paul is talking about here is not that. You see, he's directing us to Abraham. He's telling us to go back in history, right? Now, remember what we're talking about here. We're talking about how we're made right with God. We believe that we're made right with God through faith in Jesus. These false teachers were saying we're made right or justified by God through, through Jesus and through works of the law. They were saying we're justified uh, before God through Jesus and by doing other things too. That we have to hold up our end of the bargain too. Believe in Jesus and obey the law. Then you're justified before God. Believe in Jesus and be Jewish. That's what justifies us, they were saying. And so here's Paul's response. He says, no. Consider Abraham. You remember Abraham? You remember him? He tells us that Abraham, the most Jewish Jew there ever was, Father Abraham, he was the one who lived by faith. He lived by faith. He believed something. He had assurance of something. Paul is tying a string all the way back to the first installment of the saga. He's tying a string and telling us to remember our history. What did he believe? What assurance did he have? Abraham, or Abram as he was called in the 12th chapter of Genesis, is a man uh, who at the time was 75 years old, okay? He and his wife had no children. They're, they're childless. And at 75 years old, he and his wife, uh, his wife maybe about nine or ten years younger than he is, let's just say they're, they're past their prime in terms of their ability to have children. But it's at this point in Genesis 12 where God tells Abraham, this is Genesis 12, 1 to 3, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation." And I will bless you and make your name great so that you'll be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth, every nation, tribe, and tongue shall be blessed. Now, it doesn't tell us what Abraham's facial expression was at this moment. But he must have been taken aback. At least a little bit, right? I mean, I'm 75 years old and you're going to make me a great nation. That's interesting, Lord. That's really interesting. This is the Lord telling Abraham about Jesus. This is what he's doing right here. He's telling him about Jesus. Through Abraham, through his line, the Lord would bring us Jesus. So we don't know how Abram reacted uh, exactly to this news in Genesis 12, but his promise is once again repeated to him in Genesis 15. And we read this, Genesis 15:1. The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield and your reward shall be great. And Abram's response to that, okay, God, I'm going to have to stop you there, Okay. I hear what you're saying. I remember what you told me before, that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through me. But in case you hadn't noticed, Lord, I'm childless. And I'm not getting any younger. And at this point, he's probably in his 80s. So he says, I have no offspring, Lord. I've got no offspring. And see, this is where God tells him, if you recall, he tells him, look to the skies. Try and count all the stars. Try and count all the stars if you can. Because you see all the stars in the sky, so will your descendants be. Your descendants shall be numbered like the stars in the sky. More than you can count, your offspring, not an appointee from your household, right? Your offspring from your your very own son. I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth through you. And you have to love Abram's response at this point. You have to love it. He says, and I'm paraphrasing here, okay, God, I hear you. I hear what you're saying. How do I know what you're saying is true? 
How do I know I can believe you? How do I know I can put my faith in you? What assurance can I have? And it's here the Lord gives him the assurance. In, in not so many words, he tells him, Abram, let's make a covenant. Let's you and I, let's make a covenant. Let's create a contract right here, right now. Like any other covenant or contract, this was a bond between two parties. In this case, God and Abraham. The Lord tells Abraham, go get a series of animals to sacrifice. The Lord would then have him cut those animals in half. Now, you have to imagine this scene with me. It's gory. It's bloody. It's very, very ugly. This was a common practice back then as a sign of a covenant made between two parties. They would, they would cut the animals in half. Yes, this is, this is disturbing. It's gross. But this is to emphasize the serious nature of what a covenant is. And they would cut these animals in half, and then they would walk between the animal parts. And in effect, what they're saying is they walk between these animal parts is, may this happen to us. May this become of me if I break my covenant. May I be torn asunder if I break this covenant. That's the serious nature of what a covenant is, and that's the serious nature of what's being communicated. However, in this case, in this covenant between God and Abraham, though this covenant, that, that through this covenant that would bring, bring about the one who would bless all the nations of the earth, this was what we call an unconditional covenant. And what that means is that the conditions of the covenant fell on God alone. Not on Abram. When it came time to walk through the parts, Abram was put into a deep sleep. God put Abram into a deep sleep. And in the form of a smoking pot and a flaming torch, he alone, God alone, passed between the animal pieces. It was as if God was saying, I will keep the terms of this covenant. I will uphold my end of the covenant and yours. While you rest, I will work. And do you know how old Abraham was when he had his son? The son who would fulfill God's promise born to Abraham was 100 years old. He was 100 years old. And his wife, a spring chicken at 91 years old. You see why he did this? Abram and his wife, Sarah, could take no credit for this. Not at 100 years old. They're literally too old to have children. Any doctor would say, biologically impossible. It's as if he deliberately removed the human element entirely so they couldn't possibly take credit for bringing about the heir that would eventually lead us to Jesus. It was God and God alone. God would do it alone. Abram, Abraham believed. He believed what God told him. He had assurance from God. God took all the responsibility and took all the action to do what he said he would do. It was God and God alone. It wasn't God doing his part and Abraham doing his part. It was God alone. And so this is what Paul is telling the false teacher. See that? Remember Abraham? Remember that? He was brought to a place where he had no choice but to believe God's actions were true. Abraham had nothing to offer in this transaction. He had to rely on God's word and God's actions alone. He lived by faith. He, he, he lived by faith he, he, in the belief in what God alone would do. So Paul tells us in Galatians 3, 11 and 12. Now, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith, like Abraham. But the law is not faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Paul is telling us that this is a mutually exclusive situation. What do I mean by mutually exclusive? When I was younger, 
I would have friends that would go clubbing, okay? They would go from one club to the next, and, and this was a good time for them. Well, guess what? I'm in my 40s, and I go clubbing every weekend. I go to Sam's Club, and I go to Costco, okay? That's the kind of clubbing that I'm into now, okay? And seriously, I go every weekend, every single weekend, all right? That, that's where you'll find me. You'll find me at the clubs. My, my whole family goes with me, too, entire family. It's a weekly excursion. And listen, one of the best parts about going to the, the club is that I can take my whole family there and we can have lunch for about eight bucks. All of us. Total. Eight bucks. I defy you to find a better deal than that. Okay? We love it. Now, whenever we, 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 uh, we get our lunch at the club, both, uh, both at Sam's or Costco, you can get a giant hot dog for about a dollar. What a deal. Or maybe you prefer a slice of pizza that's about the size of a hubcap. It's huge. It's enormous. And so I'd ask each of my family members what they'd like to eat. And they usually tell me, they'll say something, I'd like a hot dog or I'd like the pizza, please. And and then then that's what I'll order. My wife, on the other hand, will most every time say, I'd like a half of a hot dog. Okay. Now here's the problem with that. Both Sam's and Costco will either sell you a giant hot dog or no hot dog at all. There isn't an option whereby they'll offer you a half a hot dog. Okay, it's one or the other, a hot dog, a whole one or zero hot dogs. Okay, nothing in between. It's a mutually exclusive proposition. There's no in between. Now, as an aside, you and I both know what's happening here. Uh, What she's really saying is husband split a hot dog with me, right? But I want my own hot dog. Okay, so all of it. So so most often she finds a way to split a hot dog with with someone. Okay, but otherwise, 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 this is a mutually exclusive option. You either get the whole hot dog or you get nothing at all. This is what Paul is saying, too. He's telling us there are effectively two options here. It's mutually exclusive. You either live by the law or you live by faith. You either live by the law or you live by faith. You either live by works trying to justify yourself or you live by faith. You either rely on God's work alone or you rely on yours. It's one or the other. Certainly not half of one and half of the other. Okay? If you you live trying to justify yourself, trying to make yourself right before God by works, even a little, even if it's just a little bit, then you're not living by faith. You're you're not relying on His work alone. So it's one or the other. You either live by the law or you live by faith. But here's the catch. If you try to live by the law, if 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 you live by trying to justify yourself through your own actions, I've got some bad news. Verse 11, now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. No one. No one is able to justify themselves before God. Not me, not you, not anyone who's ever lived or will live. No one has the ability to justify themselves. This is the curse of the law. But verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Remember what we said earlier. Because of sin, because of our sin, you and I are not right before God. And and so we live under this curse. We, We can't work our way out of this problem. We can't do it. No amount of action will allow us to work our way out from under this. He's perfect. He's holy. He's holy, holy, holy. And we're not. So no amount of obedience to the law, no amount, no amount of work will make us measure up to Him. So what do we do? What do we do? We need someone to help us out. We need someone to do it for us. Alone. Remember when we were talking about Abraham just a little bit ago, uh, to be a person who lives by faith, and, and Paul is telling us this is our only hope. This is the only hope we have. 
We have to live by faith. And to be a person who lives by faith, that means we have to believe what He has done. What He alone has done for us. We have to be a people who trust and believe in what He's done for us, not in what He's done plus we do too, plus what we do too. No, no, no. Remember the covenant. While Abraham slept, he took on the unconditional covenant. He upheld upheld his part and ours. He took both sides. So what does that that look like for us? Just like with Abraham, we we, we need him to do both sides. How, How are we made right before God? How are we justified before God? Well, we need two things. First of all, we need someone to take away our sin. We need someone to take away our sin because God is not only just, but He's perfectly just. And so every sin, every act of treason committed against Him requires a punishment. This is what justice is. A perfectly just judge dispenses justice for every infraction committed against the law. The punishment has to go somewhere. And if it doesn't fall on you, it's got to go on somewhere. You see, you can't just pretend it never happened, so where does it go? Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Our sin, our infractions, they they go on Christ. It's removed from you, and your sin is effectively removed and placed on Christ. But look, that's not enough. There was a slide up here a moment ago, uh, earlier before the service, from Tim Keller that said, uh, God is not just passively good, He's actively good. This is what's required, okay? It's not enough just to be sinless, to, to, to be sinless, you have to have your sin removed from you. Do you know that's not enough to be right with God? That's not enough. Being sinless alone is not enough. This is the miracle of what we just celebrated in Christmas. If, if all we needed was for sin to be removed from us, Jesus could have come down as a 33-year-old on Good Friday. We could have crucified him. He could have become the curse for us then, and sins would have been forgiven. That's it, right? And our sin would be taken care of. But no, there's another side of this covenant here. Being sinless isn't enough just to make us right before God. What else is required? Micah 6, 8, he has told you, O man, what is good and what the Lord require of you. What does the Lord require of you? Tell tell me what's required. If it's not just being sinless, what else is required of me but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? You see what he's saying? Passive obedience is not enough. You got to be actively obedient too. It's, It's not just that's that's not just not sinning it's also actively doing good it's not enough just to be sinless it's not enough just to not be bad but you have to actively be good too in other words yes you have to be sinless but you also have to be righteous too this is why jesus had to be born the way he was this is why he couldn't just show up on good friday This is why he had to come into our space as an infant so that he could live a perfectly righteous life. He had to die for our sins and live for our righteousness. To live a life from start to finish the way we were supposed to live, but we couldn't. And so these are the two parts of this covenant. We we have to be sinless and righteous. So which part falls on us? Sinlessness or righteousness? Glory to God, neither one. He upholds both parts. He takes away your sin, he takes away your sin, and he places that sin on his shoulders. Then he takes his righteousness and, and drapes it over us as a robe. This is the gospel. This, this is the good news. He takes away our sin and he gives us his righteousness. This is what makes us right before God. This is what justifies us before God. And so what is faith? How do we live by faith? 
If we can't live by the law, if trying to live by the law will only result in failure, how do we live? How do we live by faith? You just have to believe this. You just have to believe this. I think over the years we've, we've tried to complicate this a bit. I remember when I was growing up in the church, the language I was taught was, do you want to become a Christian? If you want to become a Christian, then you have to ask Jesus to come into your heart and, and be Lord and Savior of your life. Now, that's all well and good. I certainly appreciate the effort of what's trying to be communicated here, but what does that mean? What does that mean? What does it mean to ask Jesus into my heart? If, we've stopped, if we stopped there, we've left a lot of questions unanswered. Let's ask the question like the Philippian jailer asked it in in Acts chapter 16. He asked Paul and Silas, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they answered him in the next verse, Believe. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Believe. They didn't say do this ritual or obey this portion of the law or, well, let's make you Jewish first. No, they didn't say that. They said believe. Believe in what? That God and God alone upholds the covenant for you. That he does this for you. Not in cooperation with you, but he does it for you. He takes away your sin and gives you his righteousness. And that this is what makes you right before God. If you believe this, then I've got some really great news for you. If you believe this, you're you're saved already. You're justified already. You are among the righteous who live by faith. And because because of the fact that it's his work... Nothing can change that. Nothing can change that status. Now, one final point to be made here. Christ became the curse for us. He took our sin. And in so doing, Paul tells us in verse 14, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. The covenant that was given to Abraham, the promise that all nations would be blessed through him. Every nation, tribe, and tongue, this promise was fulfilled in Christ. We we don't have to be Jewish first. The promise that that all nations would be blessed through Abraham, Paul tells us that we too, when when we believe this, we too receive the promised spirit through faith, when you believe. Now, Now, here's what that means. The moment that you believe, the moment that you believe this, you're saved. The moment you believe that the work that Christ did on your behalf is what makes you right before God, you're saved, and you receive the promised Spirit. This means the moment you believe the Holy Spirit takes up residency within you. And the result of that is an inevitable change in in your behavior. You'll start living differently. You see, this is what the false teachers were saying. They were saying, believe in Jesus, change your behavior, then you're saved. But this is what Paul is saying. No, no, no. Paul is saying, no, believe in Jesus, you're saved. And then your behavior changes. Okay? Have you ever noticed that some of the things that you were required to do as a child or when you were younger, maybe, maybe you actually enjoy them now? Have you ever noticed that? When you were a child, maybe you didn't like to read, but now you love to read. Or, or landscaping. In college, there was a time when I had a job as a, as a landscaper, and when I finished that job, I swore I would never look at another lawnmower again. Now, landscaping, I kind of like it. There's a great deal of satisfaction to it when you see a nicely manicured lawn and, and things growing all around it, and it looks lovely. I kind of enjoy it, right? It's not so bad. Or how about exercise? I know some of you exercise is torture, right? But I know there are others of you, you kind of like it but it wasn't always that way. Why is that? Why is that? 
when, when you were younger, work was a chore. It was a means to an end. When you did this, then maybe you could get your allowance, or then maybe you could go play. It was a means to an end. Now, those chores, no one is making you do those things. So it's no longer a chore. It's not a means to an end. It's a joy in and of itself. You see, good works, observing the law, okay? If you engage in those works because you believe it's a means to an end, because, it, it, because you believe this is what's trying to earn your right standing before God, then it's a chore. Then you'll hate it. It's a curse. You're being forced to do something. But when the Spirit takes up residency within you and testifies to you, the work has been done for you. It's done. You have it right now. There's nothing else you need to do. When you have God's favor, you have it right now. You understand this. And then engaging in good works, it's not a means to an end. It's a joy in and of itself. Your behavior changes because you're, opening, you're, you're, you're operating not from a place of obligation, but because you see the fact that in this act there's beauty and joy and Christ. You see Christ in the work. So as we approach this table, as we approach this table, we're making a statement. When we approach this table, we're making a statement of faith, a proclamation of belief. We're saying, I believe what Jesus has done on my behalf. And, and the result of His work, and His work alone, I am right with God. We, we take the bread and we take the cup, not because we have to, not because it makes us right. We take it because we love it. We take it because we see Christ in it. We love what it proclaims. How do we find favor with God? Through Jesus Christ alone, plus nothing else. Pray with me.